Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Dan Kilbride. I am chair of the history department at John Carroll University outside of Cleveland, Ohio, and I am the host of New Books in American Studies. That means that every once a week or so, uh, an author finds me or I find an author, either way works for me, and we sit down and discuss their book with them. Uh, Today, we are joined by Caleb McDaniel. He is assistant professor of history at Rice University in Houston, Texas. And we're talking about his book, The Problem of Democracy in the Age of Slavery, Garrisonian Abolitionists and Transatlantic Reform, published in 2013 by Louisiana State University Press. Uh, abolitionists have gotten they, – they get their share of ink in American historical literature. They wrote a lot. Uh, apparently, they never threw anything out. And uh, they are – you know, just to be crude, I guess, one of the good guys of history. And so uh, they get a lot of attention, and especially the Garrisonians, arguably the most successful reform effort in American history, because in 1865, they got pretty much everything they wanted uh, with the outright abolition of slavery, which is somewhat unexpected, given that they were so unpopular in their own day, especially the Garrisonians with their the intersection of radical anti-slavery, feminism, and pacifism. That was sort of a witch's brew of the three most unpopular things in pre-Civil War America. So, Caleb McDaniel, welcome to New Books in American Studies. Thanks for having me. So, why don't you tell us about uh, you know, your intellectual trajectory and how you came to write this book? Sure. Well, um, I'm have always been interested in history, obviously. I, as an undergraduate, was one of those history majors who entered school wanting to be a history major and and graduated a history major. But uh, my interest in the abolitionists actually has maybe a a less sophisticated origin in that uh, the first semester of my college career, I went to see uh, Steven Spielberg's movie Amistad, which came out. (laughs) Uh, I think in uh, around Thanksgiving of of 1997, and looking back on it now with an historian's eye, it, it's it's a problematic movie in in some ways. But it yes, was, it is. <laughs> <laughs> but at the time, it was really an eye-opening movie for me and and a gripping one. I was uh, coming out of high school. I had been very active as um, a member of the speech and debate team, and I was really struck, especially in the movie by. Anthony Hopkins' depiction of John Quincy Adams and yeah. the power of ideas and oratory to uh, to actually affect historical change. Um, so I saw the movie twice, I think, and uh, as I remember, I was looking for a book about John Quincy Adams at that time to sort of find out more about him and went to Barnes & Noble looking for uh, a biography. was <laughs> unsuccessful in, in finding a, a biography, but I did run across uh, a book by um, William Lee Miller, who I, I think is a scholar of communications, if if I'm remembering correctly. Hmm. 
Uh, and he wrote a book called Arguing Against Slavery, which was all about uh, John Quincy Adams and the abolitionists yep. um, struggle against the congressional gag rule. This was a uh, procedural rule that was passed in, in both houses of Congress that basically forbade anti-slavery petitions from ever being read on the floor of Congress or or slavery even really being discussed. Uh, and so um, Adams, uh, you know, after after his you know uh, presidential career had had been elected to Congress and spent a lot of time standing up and starting to read anti-slavery petitions before being shouted down. So this was this was something I had this gag rule was something I had never really um, heard about before that book really, and was really um, uh, fascinated by. But I didn't really follow up on that interest in the abolitionists in my undergraduate career very much. I, other than a class on African American history, most of my history classes were in European history, and I also. Um, had a sort of budding interest in philosophy. I had a short-lived career as a philosopher uh, and <laughs> and did a master's degree in philosophy after I graduated uh, with my history degree, which I think also maybe shaped to some extent the sort of questions that I'm interested in um, as an historian of ideas and, and thinkers. Um, but I didn't really come back to the abolitionists until my first year of graduate school in the doctoral program at, at Johns Hopkins. And one of the things that students at Hopkins have to do in their first year is, is write a seminar paper, uh, which is, is sort of a, a rite of passage that uh, requires students to write an original research article that will be presented at the end of the first year to mm. the entire faculty in, in American history. So um, as I started on that daunting task, I, I was uh, still interested in the abolitionists. And so I started looking at, at The Liberator, which was a famous Boston newspaper published by William Lloyd Garrison. And I was struck uh, in reading through The Liberator by celebrations that abolitionists held on the 4th of July every year. Uh, and I initially was interested in exploring the tension between these, as you say, very unpopular radical reformers who were very critical of uh, American democracy and of the founding generation. And at the same time, they would hold these Fourth of July celebrations in which, you know, they did much <laughs> the same thing that other Americans did on, on or that other Americans of their sort did. Uh, on the 4th of July, which mainly involved criticizing the way that <laughs> the lower <laughs> sort were celebrating the holiday. So um, I worked on that topic the first year, but in the process of doing research for that in the Liberator, um, grew interested in how often abolitionists also talked about events elsewhere in the world outside of the United States. Um, so they, for example, not only celebrated the 4th of July, but also celebrated the 1st of August uh, every year is kind of an alternative July 4th holiday. And that was the anniversary of uh, slave emancipation in the British West Indies. And in addition to talking about British abolitionists and, and emancipation in other national contexts, they also wrote a lot about things that uh, I had never really studied or known about before, like the Irish repeal movement uh, led by Daniel O'Connell for uh, home rule in, in Ireland, the Chartist movement uh, in England for um, the right to vote for, for working class Britons, um, the revolutions of 1848 and various liberal movements abroad. 
And I started noticing um, what other historians before me had noticed, but was new to me, all of the uh, interpersonal connections that abolitionists had with reformers of various kinds in, in Europe. And so that, that really became the genesis for um, my dissertation, uh, which, which turned into the book. Uh, I don't want to get too far afield here, but I, uh, you brought up the Amistad, and I, I had much the same reaction that you did. And I don't know if you'll agree with this, but one of the things that bothered me about that film was the portrayal of the abolitionists, apart from John Quincy Adams, who maybe wasn't a real abolitionist. They, they seem so stiff and humorless yes. uh, in that film. They, they just don't seem like real people. It's, it's hard <laughs> right. to imagine – you know, them actually, you know, having a joke or yeah, no, right. <laughs> enjoying life. They're, they're just so cardboard in that film. Well, it's, it's surprising. It's strange in a way that uh, I think there was a there was an essay actually in a there's an anthology called Prophets of Protest. It was edited by John Stoffer and, and Tim McCarthy a few years ago. I can't remember the name of the the author who wrote a final chapter on the portrayal of abolitionists in film that made this point as well. And, and also just pointed out that we really don't have very many <laughs> uh, good <laughs> representations of, of the anti-slavery movement in film. Yeah, I think that's, that's right. And hopefully uh, 12 years a slave, of course, yeah, which is coming yeah. up pretty soon. We'll, we'll change that. The, the, the trailer looks terrific. Uh, yes. Um, why do you think, uh, this is something else I mentioned in my introduction. Why do you think that there is so much uh, literature on the abolitionist movement? Well, I think I think you you made a good point that you know they were very prolific, um, and especially uh, one of the things I talk about in the book was the conviction of Garrisonians that um, they could shape public opinion by by printing lots of things and giving lots of speeches and writing lots of letters and having lots of meetings, and they meticulously documented all these things and uh, were very scrupulous about saving that material. So they are. Uh, people who it's very easy to to know a lot about them. Um, I think that you know one of the attractions to them maybe today is is that uh, as you pointed out they they uh, are tell us a sort of victory story, a moral victory um, that that can be pleasing to sort of look back and see uh, abolitionists who are on the right side of history. Um, on the other hand, though, you know, some of these abolitionists, if you read them, they don't really allow you to kind of uh, uh, look up from their story with with a real uh, easy, settled feeling about American democracy <laughs> or, um, or or about the problem of slavery. You know, they were they were relentlessly critical um, while at the same time, you know, they did they did mark the victories that they had won. Right. Um, there's an interesting quote in your introduction that I'd like you to elaborate on because I think it really uh, uh, epitomizes this tension that you just alluded to between democracy and anti-slavery. Yeah. You write that the map of places where a Democrat could breathe freely was almost a photographic negative of those where abolitionists felt at ease. Could you explain that? Sure. Well, one of the things that the book is really about is the fact that um, on the one hand, you know, abolitionists were very unpopular in the United States. Um, at the same time, if you look at other parts of the world, um, you know, abolitionists were very popular, for example, in Britain at the same time that they were very unpopular in, in the United States. And after emancipation in the British West Indies, uh, 
Britain sort of prided itself on being an anti-slavery nation uh, that had led this vanguard of civilization to uh, to you know rid the world of slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, if you were to go abroad in the antebellum period, uh, you know, to be an abolitionist was was kind of a a hallmark of of something that you were proud of. And most of the the you know European liberal heroes of the day are people like Lafayette or or Daniel O'Connell or uh, you know, to to some extent, even in in South America, uh, liberators like Simon Bolivar had mm-hmm. these anti-slavery sentiments attached to them. What was more unpopular outside the United States was to advocate um, democracy. That is to suggest that um, instead of being governed by some kind of mixed government of aristocrats and and monarchs or or uh, oligarchies that uh, that people should have a vote, people should be able to to have representatives in in the government and legislative assemblies. So uh, the book sort of tracks the fact that um, in a way, the United States was one of the most democratic places in the early nineteenth century world, despite all of the limitations that that it had as well. You know, obviously women could not vote and uh, and slavery, the abolitionists pointed out, was the huge exception to the American democratic creed. But by 1855, most states had passed laws that essentially made universal white manhood suffrage uh, a reality across the country um, so that, you know, the property qualifications that limited voting and the size of electorates in other countries had been mostly uh, wiped out uh, in the United States. So this was this presented a dilemma for abolitionists in that, uh, on the one hand, I argue that they were Democrats and believed strongly in democracy and identified the problems with aristocracy. But at the same time, in the United States, uh, they had to wrestle with the fact that, you know, one of the most democratic governments in the world had um, not only failed to stop, but had arguably um, uh, enabled and and, uh, afforded opportunities to the spread of slavery. Um, I don't know if that helps clarify that. Sure. Mm -hmm. One of the knocks against uh, William Lloyd Garrison and the Garrisonians in general, uh, both uh, in historiography today and certainly at the time, was that uh, because of their orientation toward the political process uh, as non-resistors, they you know refused to vote, etc., that they were accused of basically disengaging from uh, from from the world and uh, engaging in protest in a sort of abstract way. You contradict that view. You really see them as uh, agitators, as people who are deeply engaged. How do you reconcile that with their leeriness towards getting involved in the mess of mm-hmm. political give and take? Well, I, I think that, you know, as, as you point out, and, and as most writers on the Garrisonians have stressed, a lot of uh, members of the American Anti-Slavery Society, people like William Lloyd Garrison and, and Wendell Phillips, refused to vote or support uh, third-party uh, political abolitionist movements like the Liberty Party or uh, the Free Soil Party. And they were very critical of the, the compromises that were required um, to, to engage in electoral politics. But I, I, I do think that historians have maybe overemphasized the degree to which Garrisonians were um, apolitical or, or anti-political um, because they were very interested in, in politics and followed what was happening in Congress or um, in the polls very closely. 
And I also argue they they believed that by giving up political power and, and the right to vote or the, the, the decision to vote, they didn't believe that they were washing their hands of political influence. They did hope to influence what happened in the political sphere. So um, one of the things that that sort of convinced me that that they weren't wholly apolitical was, <clears throat> first of all, noticing divisions within their own movement uh, mm-hmm. and the fact that many of the sort of most radical non-resistance um, actually criticized Garrison for being too involved in, in politics. And maybe I should back up in here and say that um, non-resistance was a uh, sort of a radical Christian version of pacifism in the antebellum mm-hmm. period right. that was informed partly by the ideas of uh, John Humphrey Noyes, the utopian um, minister who basically said that uh, Christians needed to behave as if God was already ruling the world, and, and that meant uh, turning their back on any human institutions that that were at odds with God's rule. And so a lot of non-resistance um, opposed war, but they also opposed um, they also opposed voting because most governments in most states were were predicated on on the, at least the threat, if not the use of military force. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, the Garrisonians were influenced by by noise and non-resistance. Um, noise actually washed his, washed his hands of the Garrisonians because he believed they were still too embroiled in in political discussions uh, and and you know we're still too concerned with the outcome of elections so that was one thing that i think um sort of tempered my view of, of the garrisonians as 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 solely non-resistance and the other problem that really animated a lot of the book was the fact that by the time the civil war rolls around uh suddenly the garrisonians are uh, basically stumping for the republican party and mm-hmm. um you know, endorsing Lincoln and the, the union cause. Um, most previous interpreters have sort of seen that as a um, an about face, a sort of contradictory uh, collapse in the face of, of events that the Garrisonians suddenly, after after holding their noses for so long uh, from politics, sort of dove in. And uh, I feel like if we understand the Garrisonians as interested in politics and in reforming politics. From the very beginning, then that that sort of final chapter of their movement makes a lot more sense. Yeah, uh, one of the tensions that uh, American abolitionists had to negotiate is the very complex uh, views of Americans in this era towards England. Um, on the one hand, uh, Anglophobia was alive and well, you know, particularly in the in the Democratic Party, but throughout American society. But there was also a, a, a sense of Anglophilia mm-hmm. uh, and identification with England, at least among uh, certain, you know, the Anglo uh, descendants of, of Americans. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you say, abolitionists were not immune mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. negotiating that tension. How did they – what were some of the problems mm-hmm. that they had to deal with when they, uh, you know, traveled to England and corresponded with English uh, friends and fellow abolitionists? Right. Well, they were, many of them believed uh, very strongly that um, that American history was rooted in English history, that many of the best things about the United States had been inherited from uh, the British past. And uh, they also knew that even the most Anglophobic Americans were, were still very sensitive to what 
uh, Englishmen <laughs> thought about American democracy. I, I talk in the book about um, all of the travel logs that were yep. published by by um, British travelers, some of whom came to the United States to uh, see democracy because they wanted to see uh, democracy succeed, and others who were very interested in showing that democracy was not succeeding, uh, and and published these critical accounts of what they had seen. Uh, so, strategically, abolitionists believed that if they could, if they could um, capitalize on the strength of the abolitionist movement in Britain, and they could um, elicit criticisms of American slavery from the British press or from from British abolitionists who would come and tour the United States that that might provoke uh, uh, conviction and or shame within American audiences uh, and and move them to do something about about slavery. So in the early part of the book, I, I explain the the origins of transatlantic Anglo-American abolitionist networks as rooted in that that Anglophilia, or at least that recognition that there there were these uh, these twin forces of anglophobia and anglophilia in in antebellum america but at the same time they were abolitionists were sort of taken aback by the backlash against those attempts so for example mm -hmm. in in um, 1834 and, and 1835 george thompson who was a, a prominent british anti-slavery lecture came and toured um uh, many of the northern United States, and he was chased by mobs and and <laughs> you know uh, people throwing eggs and brickbats at him, uh, disrupting meetings. And uh, I think I think the abolitionists were actually sort of this was a crucial turning point for Garrisonians because it showed how how deeply rooted um, a sort of uh, resistance to anti-slavery was even in the northern states, and also revealed to them the depth of, of Anglophobia and, and resistance to criticism from abroad. Mm -hmm. uh, I wonder if I get your opinion on something or regarding that question. <clears throat> um, you know, abolitionists were bitterly criticized for their links to England. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was so, sort of the inverse of what, uh, you know, Tony Blair <laughs> kind of suffered in the previous decade regarding his relationship to uh, President Bush, that he was sort of a poodle. Uh -huh. Of President Bush, uh, American abolitionists were charged with being, you know, the toadies or the puppets of English abolitionists. Do you think that it hurt the abolitionist movement in the United States to be so closely identified with the English movement, or was it just a footnote? No, I, I think that's a good question. I mean, I think that's that was a problem not just for American abolitionists, but really for for national anti-slavery movements anywhere outside of, of Britain after. Mm -hmm. uh, after the abolition of the slave trade and then and then um, the British West Indian emancipation, you know, the British Empire was really aggressively um, pursuing the the prosecution of people who were violating the ban on the, the slave trade and, and uh, kind of strong arming some other countries into signing treaties to suppress the slave trade. Uh, and so in, in a lot of contexts in South America and in other European countries, I think French abolitionists suffered the same kind of sort of taint by association with with uh, British abolitionists. So I do think that it um, uh, posed a problem that various national anti-slavery movements had to overcome. On the other hand, um, as I talk about in the book, Britain provided a sort of uh, venue or an audience for American abolitionists who often toured uh, England and gave speeches. And it was sort of a safe haven in a way for 
um, anti-slavery activists from from various countries uh, where they could publicize uh, uh, publicize their views and, and have a receptive audience and then return back to the United States or wherever they came from and point to the way that that uh, their country was perceived because of slavery in in Britain. Um, I do think that you know the point you're raising about the way that um, nationalism can sometimes um, make Americans not very receptive to to um, critics or to to radical reformers um, is a, is a really good one. I mean, you you bring you brought up the the Bush Blair connection, and it reminded mm-hmm. me that in a lot of ways, when I started work on this project, um, I was writing. <clears throat> excuse me, I was writing sort of in the the aftermath of September 11th. Um, you know, the very I think a few weeks into my grad school career, September 11th happened. And, and so I was writing about the abolitionists um, as the, the lead up to the, the Iraq war was, was happening. And there was a lot of criticism of, of going to war in Iraq. And very often what greeted critics of the war um, was, you know, the idea that, well, if you if you support America, then, you know, you you'll be willing to support this war and you won't you won't listen to critics from other countries who might suggest that we should we should make this internet an international effort. You know, mm-hmm. if, if there was there's the the famous bumper stickers about you know well, if you don't if you don't like America then you know leave love it or leave it that sort of thing. Right. Uh, and who can forget uh, freedom fries? Freedom fries, right? exactly. Freedom, freedom fries, fries yep. exactly. And and I I remember too sort of crystallizing for me in one of the 2004 presidential debates. Uh, um, at the time, there was a there was a lot of controversy over something that uh, John Kerry had said in one of the debates um, in response to a question about whether he would he would go to war um, if you know uh, if American interests were threatened, and he said something about how um, you know any proposal for for war would have to to pass a global test, uh, you know by which he meant sort of a threshold of of showing the world that we had good reason to to go to war. I mean, this is still very much uh, uh, at the center <laughs> of political debates, you know, today about, about yep. Syria, for example. Uh, and the response from from uh, then President Bush and and many Republicans was that this was ludicrous to, to say that you know uh, the United States would have to pass any kind of global test. Um, so you know, in retrospect, I can see how <laughs> the fact that all of that was going on at the time I was writing about. The abolitionists probably shaped some of the questions that that I was drawn to in the work, especially the the cosmopolitanism of the abolitionists, who mm-hmm. frequently cited as their motto, um, "Our country is the world; our countrymen are all mankind." And often greeted with the same sort of scorn by by antebellum Americans. You know, we're we're told that you know. Um, the, the antebellum version of love it or leave it, you know, <laughs> uh, and and so the the association with uh, with British abolitionists and the idea that these were um, sort of rootless cosmopolitan figures who, rather than than being loyal to their country, were um, sort of parading its dirty laundry before the world, um, was something that was was both very rooted in the patterns of anglophilia and anglophobia of the antebellum period, but also were uh, may, maybe disturbingly familiar to to me as I was reading them in in the uh, first decade of the century. Hmm. Uh, one thing, one tension that you explore in your book is the tension that abolitionists felt about the power of public opinion. And <clears throat> the figure you focus on uh, regarding this subject is uh, Wendell Phillips, mm-hmm. probably the greatest orator 
of the abolitionist movement. And you, you show that abolitionists were both um, enraptured by and concerned about the power of public opinion. And especially Wendell Phillips was really influenced by the very well-known writings on this subject of Alexis de Tocqueville. Mm-hmm. How were abolitionists simultaneously worried by and enraptured by the potential of public opinion? Right. Well, I mentioned um, earlier that that in the early 19th century, most uh, observers saw the United States as the most democratic uh, country then existing. Uh, and whether people in, in Europe were critical of American democracy or sympathetic to it, both sides really agreed that um, the United States was a society ruled by public opinion, uh, that not just in terms of uh, the government, but even society, cultural mores were all shaped by the majority, that that public opinion had a power there that it didn't have elsewhere. And of course, this was a, a major part of Tocqueville's um, writings about American democracy, Mm -hmm. um, that public opinion was very powerful. Um, The abolitionists, like most of their contemporaries, also believed that public opinion was was especially powerful in the United States. In fact, I argue that that was the premise um, behind their reliance on moral suasion and uh, newspapers and speeches and uh, propaganda. That's why they believed it could change politics ultimately, even if they didn't vote, if they could change public opinion, then public opinion would eventually change politics. So they shared this this belief that was very common at the time that public opinion was sort of all powerful in the United States. At the same time, they could see the problems that that posed because since public opinion was so powerful, um, unpopular views like their own views about slavery and race had a very hard time obtaining a hearing. Uh, And this was also something that uh, when Wendell Phillips read Alexis de Tocqueville um, really resonated with him in Tocqueville's analysis, the idea that, uh, that, that even though America was supposedly the freest society, it seemed like um, everyone sort of held the same opinions and everyone thought more or less the same way. Um, (laughs) And this was really troubling for Tocqueville um, because um, a lot of European critics of American democracy to that point had said, if you allow the people to rule and if you um, remove the checks of property and aristocracy, uh, you'll have essentially anarchy. You know, their view of of um, democracy was shaped by their experiences with the French Revolution. And they thought, you know, you're, you're going to have bloodshed and violence and anarchy if you allow democracy to rule. And what Tocqueville discovered when he came to the U.S. was precisely the opposite, that rather than unleashing anarchy and uh, this sort of uh, freewheeling diversity of opinions, that public opinion had molded um, Americans more or less into the same uh, sort of uh, uh, uniform view about things. Uh, and even he even pointed to things like um, uh, racism and slavery as examples of this. Uh, so that really, I argue, resonated with the abolitionists. It sort of clarified for them why, even though they believed in democracy and had relied on public opinion and trusted in public opinion uh, as the vehicle for their hopes, uh, why they had been so battered by mobs and um, by persecution and and by a resistance, even from northern audiences in, in Massachusetts, for example, Um, So Tocqueville, I think, sort of crystallized for Phillips particularly how um, public opinion and rule by public opinion could actually 
lead to uh, moral stagnation and conformity and um, a dislike for controversial views or dissent. Um, and that's one reason why I think the Garrisonians were so insistent on agitation, even of unpopular subjects like feminism or non-resistance. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they believed not just that they should agitate in order to affect particular ends like the abolition of slavery, but that agitation was important as an end in and of itself, that um, simply to circulate unpopular views and to make sure they obtained a, a hearing was one guard against um, the, the kinds of dangers of democracy that Tocqueville was pointing out. Mm -hmm. One of those dangers, uh, as you point out in your book, was nationalism. Um, a minute ago, you quoted the language from the masthead of the liberator, our country is the world, our countrymen are all mankind. Um, yet, I mean, that's a statement of cosmopolitanism, obviously, but abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison and even Frederick Douglass mm -hmm. were and or could be very ardent nationalists. Um, you know, many of our listeners will be familiar with uh, Abraham Lincoln's lament that one of the reasons he hated slavery was that it deprived the United States of the moral influence that it would otherwise have mm -hmm. in the world, that people are able to dismiss American criticism as, you know, base hypocrisy. Right. Um, so there is this paradox that it's at, uh, at the one time abolitionists are critics of American nationalism and ardent cosmopolitans, but they were not immune from American nationalism. How do you explain that seeming paradox? Well, I think that that's, that's a great point, and, and actually it, it touches on one of the big differences between the book and, and the dissertation that I wrote um, at Hopkins. You know, I mentioned earlier that when I was writing the dissertation, what I was really struck by was the cosmopolitanism of the abolitionists, and uh, by these you know, seemingly very, very radical, very um, still current ideas that they were circulating about identifying with the world and instead of just with their country. And so the dissertation really focused on um, that cosmopolitan idealism. Uh, I remember one of the, the readers on my dissertation committee pointed out, one of the outside readers said, uh, you know, well, if you've proved anything, it's that abolitionists said our country is the world a lot. <laughs> because, you know, every time that abolitionists said our country is Ouch. the world, you know, I had included that uh, in the manuscript. Um, so I was very taken by that side of them. But, um, you know, I, I was also, I couldn't, the more that I, that I thought about um, my sources, and particularly as I did research that sort of extended um, chronologically my uh, treatment of, of the Garrisonians, both backwards in time and also forwards in time through the Civil War, I couldn't really get around, you know, what you're, what you're pointing out, that abolitionists were very committed uh, nationalists of a kind, that they really believed in the American experiment. Um, you know, Garrison, who I talk about in the first chapter, had had really grown up, um, you know, a convinced, ardent nationalist uh, who who believed that the United States was a model for other Republican movements and revolutions elsewhere in the world. And so that sense of those strong statements of American mission to the world or American um, exceptionalism uh, that that you um, that most people associate with with Lincoln, you know, we are the last best hope on earth, uh, you know, uh, we stand for government by the people, for the people, of the people. Uh, one of the things that the book shows is that Garrisonians also uh, partook of that. So I, I 
had to sort of figure out how to reconcile the internationalism and the cosmopolitanism of statements like uh, our country is the world with their nationalism. I think I was helped by the fact uh, that a lot of historians of nationalism in recent years have pictured nationalism itself as an international movement. Uh, you know, what we see as a philosophical mm -hmm. paradox between nationalism and internationalism might obscure um, the historical coexistence and really um, co-development of nationalism and internationalism, partly out of necessity. A lot of European nationalist people like uh, Mazzini, the Italian uh, nationalist who I talk about in the book, um, in order to, to be successful, they had to build international ties uh, with, with other nationalists in Europe. And so they would at one and the same time say, um, you know, we have to save Italy and everything depends on on Italy's national independence. And at the same time, they would swear allegiance to the world and and uh, and really emphasize their cosmopolitan networks and bona fides. So the literature on European nationalism as an international movement and, and is really intertwined with um, internationalism was helpful in, in formulating the arguments of the book. Um, and also recognizing that as cosmopolitans, the Garrisonians became involved in this transatlantic conversation about democracy and about the promise and the problems of democracy helped clarify, you know, um, what kind of a nation they wanted the United States to be and why they were so interested in, in seeing the American experiment succeed. It was partly because they wanted to see democracy succeed on, on the world stage. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, the, the, the vitality of American democracy in the 1830s, 40s, 50s can actually obscure the fact that this era, you know, internationally mm -hmm. was actually one of a resurgent, you know, reactionary movements mm -hmm. and aristocracy. Right. And the abolitionists were keenly aware that Arist you know, today, you know, aristocracy may seem like some, something quaint, right. like, you know, we pay attention for some reason, to the birth of this baby over in England, and people care about that for some <laughs> yeah, reason, yeah. even though I think it's un-American to do so. Um, but Garrisonians uh, were, were very aware that aristocracy was alive and well, and that, that the triumph of democracy was not a foregone conclusion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How, how was that spirit of aristocracy alive and well, and how did Garrisonians fight it, both at home and abroad? Well, I think that's right. I mean, I think we look back and, and think that, you know, after the American and French Revolution, that um, de democracy was sort of destined to to uh, continue on in its career. But um, if you look at the early 19th century and the setbacks to, say, the revolutions of 1848, for Democrats at, at the time, I don't think, um, you know, they were as comfortable <laughs> uh, yeah. as we might make them out to be. I mean, it really seemed possible, especially after the failures of the 1848 revolutions, that a lot of the gains made by Democrats uh, in Europe would be be rolled back. You know, um, the uh, Parliamentary Reform Act of 1832 in England, which was hailed at the time as sort of this major um, expansion of the electorate in, in England, uh, even after that, there were still only about 20%, I think, of the um, adults, uh, male population of England could vote um, because of, of the still high property qualifications uh, in, in England. And so radical Democrats, people like the Chartists who argued for universal suffrage were, um, you know, persecuted and um, ultimately also turned back in the reactionary 
post-1848 um, movements. So, uh, so I think abolitionists were, uh, and, and, and American Democrats generally, um, were aware of this. And the difference between abolitionists maybe and, and the, the run-of-the-mill um, Jacksonian Democrat who would point these things out about England was that um, abolitionists all, also believed aristocracy was uh, alive and well in the United States. You know, they looked at the slaveholding class mm-hmm. as, as an aristocracy, uh, as a slave power. And they, uh, even though the Garrisonians have typically been seen as separate from uh, political abolitionists who were upset about the slave power, um, I argue in the book that, that Garrisonians, too, were very concerned by the aristocratic features of, of slavery um, in the United States. And so um, I think there was a real sense, you know, um, that Lincoln expressed, of course, most eloquently when he talked about how um, at the Gettysburg Address, we don't want government of the people to perish from the earth, that, that, that government of the people perishing from the earth was actually a live option <laughs> in, in the <laughs> mid-19th century in, in the minds of the people uh, living through it. And I think that abolitionists also um, had that s- strong sense of urgency. Um, and I think we've missed that to some extent by, again, emphasizing the Garrisonians' um, religious radicalism, their perfectionism, their non-resistance to the exclusion of their interest in political democracy um, and in making democracy work um, so that um, so that its safety and uh, its promise could be demonstrated to the world. Uh, you know, Garrisonians were very leery of politics, mm-hmm. as you said. Um, they, you know, they wanted influence, yeah. but they were also afraid that influence might change them mm-hmm. as much as they changed the United States. Right. Uh, what were some of the major inter- events internationally that sort of taught them about the potential of influence and what it could do for them? And what lessons did they learn from things like Irish repeal and the Anti-Corn Law League? Right. So um, as, as you pointed out, the abolitionists, uh, the Garrisonians did decide after 1840 um, uh, to refrain from voting. And most of them refrained even from uh, endorsing political candidates uh, explicitly or, or joining in things like the Liberty Party or the Free Soil Party. But I argue in the book that they still very much wanted uh, political influence. They wanted to be able to change what was happening in Congress or in the polls. <clears throat> so they, but they needed some proof that agitating public opinion, which they also thought was important in its own right, uh, as a way to to ward off the the perils of of democratic uh, conformity and stagnation. Could that agitation be influential? Could it actually be effective? And what? Um, they saw when they looked abroad at contemporary movements like Irish repeal or the anti-corn law league was uh, proof in their minds that extra parliamentary movements, so popular movements that took place out of doors or outside of, of legislatures could still affect legislative change, could still shape policy. Um, so the Irish repeal movement, for example, uh, was, was led by Daniel O'Connell who had earlier, Earlier led um, a movement for Catholic emancipation in England to pro- uh, allow Catholics the uh, right to serve in Parliament, um, and he had been sort of held up not only by uh, not only within Ireland but also even within Europe. O'Connell was sort of seen as as proof of the power of a popular movement 
to actually change aristocrats who were reluctant to give in. And O'Connell tried the same thing with the Irish repeal movement, which sought to repeal the union between England and, and Ireland less successfully, but still um, using popular meetings, large monster meetings, as they were called, of um, of uh, Irish uh, uh, agitators who, who wanted to repeal the union that unsettled um, aristocrats in, in England. And so... Uh, when Garrisonians saw the success of the Irish repeal movement and they corresponded very closely with Irish repealers and with Irish abolitionists who knew O'Connell personally, um, those networks were sort of leading them to read the Irish repeal movement in a certain way as proof that extra parliamentary agitation could be effective. Uh, and they were even more impressed by the Anti-Corn Law League, which succeeded in, in 1846 mm. in securing the repeal of of the corn laws. And, um, after, after, you know, uh, a, a, a fairly brief, but, but, uh, very active career of the anti-corn law league, um, which was modeled in a lot of ways on, on the British anti-slavery movement's reliance on publications and propaganda and speeches and meetings and, and all the apparatus of a popular reform movement. Um, so when Garrisonians saw the success of the anti-corn law league, uh, they believed that agitating in the United States could be effective, despite what political abolitionists um, were telling them about their their sort of uh, failure to engage in the political process. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this book details some of the really close relationships, <laughs> the personal relationships between abolitionists on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, in some ways, American abolitionists, especially uh, African-American abolitionists, sometimes felt more at home in England than they felt in the States. Mm-hmm. But the Civil War put a lot of pressure on the transatlantic anti-slavery networks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, what, what about the Civil War uh, you know, created those tensions? Well, uh, one, one of the things I, I argue in the book is that you know, um, over the, the decades when abolitionists had corresponded with British abolitionists, they had really relied on British abolitionists to help them point out all of the problems with American democracy, you know, to, as I said earlier, help shame Americans into doing something about slavery. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, every time Americans, went, every American abolitionist went to Britain, they would lambast the, the United States and talk about all of its contradictions and hypocrisies. And their British friends, you know, when they heard that, were, were, were very convinced and <laughs> were very persuaded <laughs> that the United States was... Um, you know, was um, a pretty bad place. Conversely, um, you know, uh, when American abolitionists corresponded with anti-corn law leaguers or Irish repealers or chartists who pointed out all the problems with aristocracy in Britain, that sort of reinforced for American abolitionists that, uh, you know, Britain wasn't exactly the the empire of freedom that it that it claimed to be either. Um, and so before the Civil War, you know, both those arguments made sense for strategic reasons. But I think what the Civil War exposed was how much nationalism really both British abolitionists and American abolitionists had had retained all along. So that when the war breaks out and um, rather than rushing to support the Union cause, there's a lot of um, dispute within Britain about uh, the real purposes of the war and um, there's a lot of disagreement about whether England should intervene, um, and even some of the abolitionists' anti-slavery friends are are critical of the Lincoln administration over things like its, uh, you know, tariff policies, 
in, instead of, um, you know, giving a sort of full-throated um, uh, endorsement of, of Lincoln and the Union cause, a lot of American abolitionists feel wounded or sort of betrayed. Um, you know, they see the Civil War as the moment that is finally going to make um, success possible, uh, is going to make emancipation um, inevitable. And instead of cheering alongside them, uh, British abolitionists are critical and also, uh, you know, are sort of questioning Garrisonians about how, even though they've been non-resistance uh, for, for two decades, now they're suddenly, you know, um, uh, join, jumping on the bandwagon and, and beating the drum for war. Yeah, that was a pretty good question, though. It was a good question. <laughs> it was a good question. I mean, I think... Um, I think it, it again kind of exposes, though, that that we misread the Garrisonians if we see them only as committed non-resistance. Uh, that that there were that there were commitments that went deeper uh, for Garrisonians than than non-resistance. Um, but that that was a good question, you know, at the time. It put a lot of strain on uh, on these these transatlantic networks that that were only partially repaired um, after the war. Well, how quickly do you think that American abolitionists, you know, among the non-resistors, of course, it, it needs to be said that not not every or even most abolitionists in the United States were could be lumped under Garrisonians. Right. There were uh, many, many, many yes. uh, different splinter and, groups. And, that was, And not uh, all Garrisonians were non-resistance, is that yep. point? Uh, so it's one of the problems with the movement. It was it's so left-wing movements in general, you could argue, mm-hmm. se- seemed to splinter in, in a lot of different ways. Um, but how quickly and how easily do you think they did reconcile to the the fact that slavery looked like it might be finally on the way to extinction yet the means through that uh happy event was a massive unbelievably violent war well they they uh they were conscious of that that tension, but they had even in the late 1850s, um, and other historians uh, have written about this. People like Stanley Harold have talked about how, um, you know, as the 1850s wore on, abolitionists really of all sorts had had come to a an accommodation with the idea that violence might be needed to deal with with slavery in the United States, and and of course they moved towards that conclusion at different paces, you know, uh, someone like John Brown got there much quicker than someone <laughs> like, like William Lloyd Garrison. But, yeah. but even Garrison, you know, in, for example, writing about Brown, uh, or writing about, uh, slave rebellions, uh, even as early as, as the 1830s, you know, when, when the Nat Turner revolt occurred, uh, Garrison, um, very controversially and, and very radically, you know, for the time, uh, said, of course, we don't condone violence, and you know, we would never incite this kind of bloodshed. But <laughs> if any <laughs> group would was ever justified, you know, in taking up arms to to uh, free itself and secure its rights, then the slaves would be that group. You know, and they mm-hmm. they really from the beginning of their movement had always uh, had always spoken about violence in that way uh, that they themselves distanced themselves from violence, but you know, if violence ever were justified, it was more justified in the pursuit of liberty than in the maintenance of slavery. Um, and so I, I guess, um, I think some people will, will still see the Garrisonians capitulation to violence and to the war as a sort of sudden turn of events. I see it as, as the culmination of a, of really a, um, a, a much longer and ongoing process of accommodation to violence that had been going on, um, since since the 1830s, um, and really, we have to also 
think about the Garrisonians in the context of their whole lives, that these were also people, post-revolutionary Americans, who believed very strongly that the American Revolution, uh, despite its violence, had secured uh, uh, good things. Uh, you know, Garrison, as a young apprentice printer, uh, was uh, a huge fan of uh, uh, Lafayette and George Washington and romantic freedom fighters like Bolivar and and Lord Byron in Greece, you know, followed very closely the revolutions uh, in the 1820s and the 1830s in Europe. So they they were people who who were, um, despite the their conversion to non-resistance, um, were were still you know uh, be, still believed that revolutions of the kind that took place in the Civil War could sometimes uh, produce good. Yeah. Um, so abolitionists were especially those in England and America were split over civil war issues. But as you say, they were really divided by the questions of reconstruction. And, you know, I personally think that compared to the civil war reconstruction, it's so much more divisive, so much more problematic, uh, just trying to forge a peace that would be both just Mm -hmm. and agreeable. Uh, And not only did it split, English from American abolitionists, but you argue that it split American abolitionists, especially, you know, uh, Phillips and Garrison mm-hmm, mm-hmm. really divided over a number of issues, uh, yeah. whether it was, you know, uh, what, you know, what their view of Lincoln should be, mm-hmm. you know, his halting steps towards emancipation and especially the question of black suffrage. Mm-hmm. Uh, why was reconstruction such a divisive uh, event for, uh, anti-slavery activists? Well, I think that the main point of division between Garrison and Phillips really was their um, disagreement about whether to support uh, Abraham Lincoln's re-election in 1864. Um, and a, a lot of previous historians of the split between Phillips and Garrison have have seen that disagreement is really rooted in a difference about black suffrage, that Phillips opposed Lincoln's reelection because he wasn't convinced that Lincoln was going to um, pursue radical reconstruction policies that would um, dispossess slaveholders of their lands and um, ensure that that full democracy um, uh, sort of was was, uh, put into place in the reconstruction South. Whereas Garrison, some some previous interpreters have argued, um, sort of hedged on that question a little bit, or was was less um, was less uh, committed to the idea of of black suffrage. Um, I argue uh, against that to some extent that I don't think Garrison was uh, was really uncommitted to black suffrage, but that he and Phillips disagreed about um, the timing of of calls for for various reconstruction policies and specifically were divided about whether it was wise to oppose Abraham Lincoln's reelection in the middle of the war when Garrison believed that many anti-war Democrats were really threatening to um, to divide the North. And, you know, if the Republicans weren't reelected, then Garrison believed that would be disastrous for um, Mm -hmm. the cause of abolitionists and that, you know, potentially there were people who um, might even attempt to roll back uh, emancipation in the courts or to suggest that emancipation wasn't final. This was all you know, before uh, the 13th Amendment had been secured. So in, in, the, in, in that sort of last chapter, without, <laughs> without maybe giving away you know, any, any spoilers, I, 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 see, I see their division about Lincoln as um, rooted partly in their 
um, earlier views about public opinion that we talked about earlier. Um, you know, abolitionists were very uh, convinced in the power of public opinion, but despite the the amount of faith that they put in public opinion, they actually didn't have a very unified uh, view of how to measure public opinion and how to gauge where public opinion was heading. And so part of their disagreements during Reconstruction really stemmed from different interpretations of the, the state of public opinion at the time. Uh, Phillips mm -hmm. believed that the North was ready to move forward on more radical uh, Reconstruction policies. Um, Garrison was less convinced that public opinion uh, had matured that far, and, and a lot of their disagreements came down to uh, to that difference of opinion. Right. You know, I, I think that's the first time I've ever heard, heard a historian use the word spoiler <laughs> to describe a history book. This is not an episode of Sherlock. Yeah, they, they, all, they, all die. <laughs> they all die in the end. Ah, <laughs> um, oh, damn, you gave it away. Um, so uh, I know this may seem a perverse question, given that you've just spent about 12 or 13 years on this <laughs> book, um, and you just published it, and you should be celebrating. But what is what is next for you? Well, I've, I've sort of started on a project um, less about anti-slavery and more about slavery. I'm, I'm interested uh, in slavery and emancipation in Texas and Louisiana uh, right now. Um, partly, I'm interested in, uh, in the ways that various forms of slavery survived the end of the Civil War. And this was a problem that was of great concern to people like Wendell Phillips. Mm -hmm. um, and also reflects uh, one of my interests in thinking about how historians can help uh, clarify um, our understanding of the persistence of forms of slavery uh, beyond uh, legal abolition. I'm actually now a, a board member for a group called Historians Against Slavery, uh, which you can find at historiansagainstslavery.org, uh, which was founded by uh, Jim Stewart, a great abolitionist historian a few years ago, to try to get historians to think about how our scholarship and our, our, our expertise on slavery and anti-slavery can inform uh, uh, policy and, and activism in the present about different forms of slavery. Um, I'm also increasingly interested in digital history. Uh, one of the things that I'm doing with this new book is actually uh, I've started a, an, an online research notebook for the project that people can sort of follow along with and see okay. the notes that I'm taking uh, as I work on on the new project to to experiment with with new platforms for um, uh, open notebook uh, humanities and history research. So I, as you, you started off by saying the abolitionists were sort of the, the good guys of history, I guess I've, I've worked on the good guys and now I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking a little bit at some of the bad guys. <laughs> well, you actually anticipated my next question, which I, I wanted to invite you to uh, talk about historians against slavery. Uh, which you've already done, um, and I do encourage uh, our listeners to go to the website and uh, you know all uh, all praise to Jim Stewart <laughs> for beginning that organization. Yes. Um, you obviously uh, write a lot about anti-slavery and slavery, and you certainly teach about it. Mm -hmm. How surprised are you? How, of course, I'm sure you bring up the issue of contemporary slavery uh, to your students. Are they surprised to, as mine are? I think here to learn that. Slavery is still a problem, that it didn't end in 1888 in Brazil or in 65 in the United States, that this is a problem that uh, still uh, yeah. uh, mars our contemporary world. 
Yeah, I, I think that students are. I've actually just met with some some undergraduates here at Rice who are forming a, a, a group uh, through the, the Free Project, which is also somewhat affiliated with Historians Against Slavery. It's basically a website that helps uh, student groups uh, start um, organizations that would uh, help them tackle this issue, learn more about this issue, raise awareness about this issue, and and that's that's typically the way that students are drawn to it. Is is the idea that uh, you know uh, slavery didn't end in 1865, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of the public interest in it also comes from that. You know, they see see a movie like Lincoln, and uh, you know it 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 depicts this this great event. It's sort of the end of slavery. Um, how could it still have have survived? Um, but I think that. Uh, one of the things that historians of slavery know is that slavery and and uh, slaveholders uh, were always very resourceful about adjusting to <laughs> yes, <they were. laughs> to different circumstances, and that um, in, in a sense the problem of of slavery doesn't go away because uh, um, it, it 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 shifts shape rather than ever sort of being being totally ended. Um, I think actually sometimes um, perhaps the um, the way that activists about uh, slavery in, in the present talk about slavery, where where the the main goal is to end slavery, or we could be the generation that ends slavery, you know, may actually um, miss that side of slavery. That this is this is not something that what we've learned, I guess, from the past is that even legal abolition, you know, even if you could reach a point where. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seemed that slavery was ended. That doesn't mean that you know you can sort of uh, rest or let up <laughs> on yep. on being vigilant about the ways that it that it resurrects in different forms. Um, That's right. Wendell Phillips actually this one of Jim Stewart's favorite quotes from Phillips, which I was really delighted that one of the students here at Rice actually started this this meeting the other day with this quote from Wendell Phillips. Um, <laughs> you know, he talked about during Reconstruction that we have abolished the slave, but the master remains. And I think that's a useful way of, of thinking about it, that rather than um, talking about the the end of slavery to see the way that enslavement and processes of enslavement and people who would be enslavers um, continue to exist in our world. Yep. You've uh, already suggested, apropos your discussion of your research, that you're very a sophisticated guy technologically. You're into the digital humanities. You're also very active on Twitter. So if our listeners wanted to follow you, uh, where where would they get you? What's your hashtag? Absolutely. They can find me at at WCaleb. Excellent. Uh, Caleb McDaniel, we've taken an hour of your life and uh, we're going to give it back to you now. So thanks so much for joining us today. It's an honor. Thanks, Dan. Excellent. Thanks very much. This has been Dan Kilbride. From New Books in American Studies, we've been talking with W. Caleb McDaniel about his book, The Problem of Democracy in the Age of Slavery. You'll find a little uh, button on this book uh, at the site of the interview, and I encourage everybody to click on it and throw some royalties Caleb's way. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.